Mesa Verde, the most advanced desert reclamation complex in the Western Hemisphere, invites you to explore its wide range of career possibilities. Maglev Express Service to Mesa Verde leaves every 30 minutes. Epcot Center has been created to showcase prototype concepts and technologies that may someday serve people everywhere. This is the essence of Epcot Center. Yo ho, yo ho, a parrot's life for me. A parrot's life for me. A parrot's life for me. Our next stop is Disney's Polynesian Resort, with continuing service to Disney's Grand Floridian Beach Resort and the... Hello, everybody, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 312 for the week of February 10th, 2013. I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are by just talking about the things that make us happy about Walt Disney World on this podcast, as well as my videos, blog, live broadcasts, in-person events, my Walt Disney World trivia books, CDs, and more. You can find it all over at www.radio.com. So this week, we're going to take a closer look at an attraction that, believe it or not, has ties to Walt Disney. The Kilimanjaro Safaris in Disney's Animal Kingdom is an attraction that is replete with story, details, and important messages. So in this week's DSI Disney Scene Investigation, we'll look at its very early beginnings, development, changes, and secrets. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. I'll also recap the WDW Radio six-year anniversary event announcements and play some of your voicemails at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WDW Radio Show. I want to start off this week's show by saying thank you to all of you who joined us either virtually in the box or live at Epcot for our WDW Radio six-year anniversary adventure this past Saturday, February 9th. The six years of WDW Radio would not have happened without you, and that day would not have happened without all of you coming up with some really great creative ideas for things for us to do to help celebrate and pay forward a little bit of magic during our six-year anniversary adventure. Thanks to everybody also who came out to the meet of the month. If you missed it, that's okay. I'm going to post a video recap of the six-year anniversary events on the blog, in iTunes, and on YouTube this week. So definitely stay tuned uh, the next couple of days to have that up for you. I appreciate everybody who came out for the meet of the month after the anniversary adventure. Look, you know that there is nothing more that I enjoy more than the meet of the month and the other events. Uh, I'm always looking to do more. I believe nothing beats a handshake and a hug. We had such a good time celebrating together. And if you missed it, if you were unable to watch, unable to join us, I did have a number of announcements that I made during the event that I want to share with you now. First, because I enjoy these events so much, uh, I always want to do something or give you something when you come. And now when you do, I'm going to have something else for you as well. Because now every event that you come to, whether it's a meet of the month, a meetup, or some of the other on-the-road events, you can get a WDW Radio free passport, right? It's a small book that, that I'll bring to events, and you can bring to events that will stamp with a unique imprint showing that you are there. You can personalize it. You can write in it. You can jot down maybe the names or emails or Twitter address of, of new friends that you meet, record memories, get a signature maybe of a special guest that may stop by. Also, whenever you come to an event, or maybe if you maybe run into me in the, in the parks, you can also possibly get a new WDW Radio mystery ticket. I'm going to give you a ticket. You keep the ticket. I'm going to keep the stub. They're both numbered. And I'm going to ask you to hold on to these tickets. Bring it to all the events. You never know when you might need it or what you may need it for. That's part of the mystery. Be sure you hang on to it until the end of the year, as it may 
help you for a chance to win an epic Disney prize. And if you can't make it to some of the live events here, don't worry, because there's going to be opportunities to win mystery tickets on live shows, in the box, for contest prizes. It's okay if you're overseas. You never know how or when or what you may be able to do with your mystery ticket. But because I said I do believe that nothing beats a handshake and a hug, I'm a hugger. That's why I love doing the live events. It allows me to meet you, and more importantly, it allows you to meet one another and continue to foster that sense of family and community that you have all created. I said at the beginning of the year, we're going to be doing more events beyond Meet to the Month in Walt Disney World as we're going to be taking WDW Radio on the road. I announced a few already. So, for example, you know that we're going to be going out to Aulani Disney Resort in Hawaii from July 15th through the 20th. We're going to spend a few days uh, at Aulani at the resort. We're going to have special discounted room rates, group events, excursions, few surprises and much more you can visit the events page to find out more and get a no obligation quote there but on the show this past week during the live broadcast i did announce some additional events and some additional details so i talked about going sort of making the pilgrimage out to the walt disney family museum in san francisco california we are going to do it this spring and we're going to be going on saturday april 13th we're going to have a very special event there that's going to allow us to experience the Walt Disney Family Museum together with exclusive early private entry just for our group, a unique opportunity to enjoy the museum, a special presentation by a museum representative. You're also going to get a gift bag. There's going to be surprises as well, too. Tickets are limited. They do go on sale today, so you can visit the events page at www.radio.com for more information. If you're local or are you coming in to San Francisco for the event, we'll probably do something on Friday night and possibly Sunday morning as well to really make it a nice weekend together out in San Francisco. If you are traveling to San Francisco, you can book as part of the group in our group hotel, Mouse Fan Travel. We'll have discounted group rates for you there. Again, you can get a link to Mouse Fan Travel right on the events page over at www.radio.com. So I also announced more information about our upcoming cruise on the Disney Fantasy. For the past two years, nearly 500 members of the WDW Radio family have joined us on individual cruises in February and then November on the Disney Dream. We had such an amazing time on both cruises, obviously the last one with Disney legend Richard M. Sherman. The only thing we could do to make it better was make it longer because four days was not enough. This year, we're going on the Disney Fantasy, and this past weekend, I announced our very special guest because joining us is going to be my friend and New York Times bestselling author, Ridley Pearson. He authored the Kingdom Keeper series of books which take place in the Disney parks and on the Disney Cruise Line. So Ridley's going to spend the entire week with us doing a lot of different events including tours, workshop, quests, signings, and lots more. Very interactive, engaging experiences during the voyage for the entire family. I'm going to have Ridley come on the show to talk about it some more, but you can visit www.radiocruise.com for more information, you can get a video of me and Ridley talking about Kingdom Keepers 5 that takes place on the ship, how that may play into what we have planned. You can, of course, also get a free, no-obligation quote. Be part of the group by booking through mousefantravel.com. A couple of other events we're going to be doing later on this year. We're going to be back again for the third time in a row at the D23 Expo. We're going to have a bigger, better, more fun booth. And, of course, if you can't make it out to the Expo, and you should try if you can, we're going to have full live coverage again over on www.radiolive.com. Finally, I announced that I am going to be doing another on-the-road meet for the first time outside the U.S. I'm going to be visiting Toronto, Canada this summer to speak the weekend of June 1st. So I figured as long as I'm there, let's have an event. Stay tuned for details of the meet and event details while I'm there. You can find more details, info, and upcoming announcements on the event page over at www.radio.com. I hope to see you either in Walt Disney World at a meet of the month, on the Fantasy, in Alani, in San Francisco, or on the road somewhere close to you. Story exists everywhere in Walt Disney World as it really is paramount to the guest experience. Every ride, shop, show, and resort tells a story, some real, some imagineered, and some of those stories even carry a message. And in fact, an entire park 
was built on that foundation of story with a purpose. And of course, I'm ca- talking about Disney's Animal Kingdom itself, and it's it's this love of animals and our relationship with animals that goes back to Walt Disney. He loved animals at films, early films like Dumbo and Bambi and the True Life Adventure series that ran from the 40s, late 40s to the early 60s. You know, Walt wanted live animals on the Jungle Cruise. Of course, you couldn't control those animals. They slept all day and they would potentially eat the guests. But the Kilimanjaro Safari at Disney's Animal Kingdom is the ultimate realization of that dream. An attraction that in itself is larger than all of Disneyland. So this week, join us on a safari of our own as we do another DSI Disney scene investigation on this attraction. It's history, story, details, changes, and much more. And joining me this week once again is intrepid explorer, Warden Ryan P. Wilson Matua of the Main Street Gazette. Jumbo! (laughs) I just couldn't wait to call you Ryan P. Wilson Matua, and that name might actually stick. You know, I it I've been waiting years for so I knew somebody eventually would catch on to the Wilson theme, and I would be doomed. I don't know how I didn't think about it until tonight, but I was very excited when I finally did. <laughs> but yeah, so Walt, if he had had his way, all the guests would have gotten the point in the end. Oh, but um, chick. But but it's true, you know, with that, that reference I made to Walt wanting live animals in the Jungle Cruise. This is sort of that, le- you know, legendary tale. And again, sometimes Walt had to be explained, well, yeah, you know, that that wasn't going to work back in 1955 because they didn't know how they were going to tr- control the animals. You know, many of them are nocturnal. They'll sleep all day long. And yes, you have that, you know, potential uh, problem of them jumping into the boat and maiming your guests. But, and I think... This really is, like I said, this ultimate realization of what Walt wanted. He did have this love of animals. This idea of the True Life Adventure series was his feeling that, look, everyone can't go to Asia and Africa and go see these animals in person. I want to bring that experience to them, and that's what the safari does. It, absolutely, and it was one of those pieces that the Imagineers really held on to when they were building this. It was this, you know, merging of Walt's dream of these animals, you know, in a much larger environment than they would have had with the Jungle Cruise. And then you have all this research they did on, you know, what a family trip could be to Africa, what the cost would be, what would be the once-in-a-lifetime trip, and how could they make a better version of that that was accessible to more of the masses. Yeah, and I think that this uh, attraction and even the, the land is so different than some of the other exotic locales that are represented in Walt Disney World, like an Adventureland, you know, but maybe it's similar in that it doesn't represent a specific place or a country. It's about setting the stage, and we'll talk about this later, but it's about setting the stage for the story. Absolutely, and you're right. And eventually, you have all these mini, you know, these little miniature areas of stories. And it may be a certain country, you may have a certain thing, but now you're in like East Africa, and it's this faraway place that everyone's dreamed of. But it's how do you set that stage perfectly so that it's you know familiar and yet something very, very different? Yeah. So I want to go back to its very, very early beginning, sort of the, the genesis of this concept of what this park was going to be, because it really goes back to. 1989. And again, I talk about, you know, we talk about Michael Eisner, and I've said it probably ad nauseum at this point about how much I would love to talk to him about, about and to Michael Eisner about the amazing things he did for this company, for this, uh, for the, the Disney parks, per se. I think we sometimes remember how it ended as opposed to his contributions. Because in 1989, you know, Eisner puts out this message about an idea of a theme park about animals over to Walt Disney Imagineering, right? January of 1990, Joe Rohde, you know him as the guy with the big earring, but this is sort of his park. Uh, he has his initial meeting with Michael Eisner, right? It happens very, very quickly. This is, starts to sort of catch fire, this idea of a theme park based around animals. And this very early idea sort of broke it down into three parts. There would be kind of the traditional theme park. There'd be pavilions, much like an Epcot Center, and what they wanted to be very specific was going to be a non-traditional zoo, right? And this came not just from the creative mind of Joe Rody, but Michael Eisen was very much a, a part of it, even so much so in terms of naming what it was going to be. He said, look, we have the Magic Kingdom. We should have Animal Kingdom. 
and he gave them a very short window of time, Ryan. He gave them 12 weeks to start coming up with an outline of what this park was supposed to be and look like and represent. And some of those early concepts didn't really wow anyone. You know, they'd had these meetings, and nobody really was was biting in on the concept. And even though Eisner had had been kind of behind it, he was starting to wane a little interest. And then you have you know the great story of Joe Rody walking in to do a presentation, and they bring a live tiger in for them to <laughs> to look at, and suddenly nobody's paying attention to what you're saying in the presentation. It's this wow factor of seeing this animal, you know, that's wild, very feral up close and personal and all the, the just the motions of it's you know walking around and resting and you realize right there there's your hook that's it if you can get this connection between man and the world that it surrounds and the world that it lives in there's your idea right and the, the park really is and I, I think i wrote about this in either a, a blog post or an article the park's concept uh really comes down to you know sort of our relationship or even our, our conflict with animals, but it comes down to a single word. And if you ever read uh, the book by uh, Melody Momberg, uh, The Making of Disney's Animal Kingdom, they talk about this concept of love, right? A love of animals, this childlike love of animals as pets. And then in adolescence, it's more about how they look and the sense of adventure. And as adults, it's it's a respectful, intellectual, mature appreciation and understanding of animals and that's where that was sort of the core right so when they're sitting in their little trailer at imagineering and realizing this park has to be about people right it's about people and like you said with the tiger their emotional reactions and attachments to animals it was very much from the from day one not going to be a zoo no and that's what you always you know they even had the tagline with the with the font that said not a zoo and it, it was it was this how do we make this not a zoo and it was through telling of their story through telling of the theme of the park which was this connection between us and the natural world and those conflicts and you know how we have these loves and how we have these problems um, and I know we were both there at Animal Kingdom's 10th anniversary when Joe Rody was talking about all this and you know you choose even in your architecture is this building going to work with the with nature or is it going to be opposed to nature where it's going to be reclaimed by you know these trees and these vines and so every Every corner of that park had to reflect this message of, you know, we all, you know, live in this world. We have to find a way to work together. And the interesting thing, too, is, you know, it's Eisner's idea. Uh, they send it over to Imagineering. They have these initial meetings. Uh, Eisner has this idea of what it's even going to be called. But yet when they announced the Disney decade, there's no mention of Disney's Animal Kingdom. So they did have to make sure they sort of got a hook in, like you said, very, very quickly and sort of get that framework of what this park was going to uh, be like, how each element was going to appeal to the kids, the adolescents, and the adults, right? And even in, if you look at some of the very early sketches, one part that was a, not just a requisite element, but really sort of the, the, the keystone based on where it is and, and how big it was, was this existing animal wild safari, right? There was also gonna be the animals who never existed and real animals you couldn't see sort of in a hub and spoke more more like a hub and bubble kind of a layout mm -hmm. but at the very top in this big section was going to be this wild animal safari and one of the very first things they did when this project was sort of green lit was head out to africa you know that look disney's all at the details it's all at the authenticity they go out to kenya uh, one of the many places they went to and really wanted to get uh a real world experience of what a safari was going to be like and things like that. You know, you might say, well, do you really have to, you have, you have the idea of a concept of a safari. You could just design it, put the animals where they go, but subtle little things, right? So for example, you know, a real safari isn't like a Kilimanjaro safari where you see animals all the time. A real safari is if you get lucky in this giant, vast, you know, Savannah, seeing an animal, something that could happen like it did what happened to them, which is, there literally is a traffic jam of safari vehicles that are sitting there with, with tourists hanging out of their vehicles trying to take a picture of a cheetah that's 300 feet away, right? It's a football field away. They realize we've got to give them, we've got to provide a much better, a much different experience. That's how they start the, to design their version of the Kilimanjaro safari. 
Right. They were there for two weeks, and they want to document everything from the rock work to the dirt. You know, there's a great um, – I think there's a great piece of artwork where they sketched this bridge, and they knew this was going to be the bridge for their rickety – you know, this rickety, dangerous section of the safari. But they did. They had these once-in-a-lifetime concepts of, of what families could afford and what would be you know, their be-all, end-all. This is our one trip to Africa. And they said, we can do this. And, you know, Africa is a theme park. It's just not a really well-run one. And we're going to show it a little bit better. Right. And they realized, too, for a lot of reasons, why it could not and should not be a zoo. You're talking about the not a zoo uh, tagline, which has since gone away. But from a purely financial standpoint, they do these economic analyses of zoos and realize that, that zoos don't do well financially. It needs to be more than that. It needs to be sort of that quintessential Disney theme park experience. And I think it did really go back to Walt Disney and the True Life Adventure Series and his desire to create a park that would feature live animals. And, you know, it seems as though that was always sort of in the DNA at Imagineering. You know, no good idea ever dies. Um, Maybe the way it looked in the 50s and early 60s didn't make sense. But Rhodey and his team, with the backing and support of Eisner, realized this was a concept that could work. Yeah, absolutely. And I do. I believe it goes back to these, you know, a, a good idea never dies. And a really good idea from Walt definitely never <laughs> dies. Um, but they did. They want, you know, they wanted to see zoos have the animals, but you're not, there's not a connection there because you see them in cages or you see them in, you know, semi enclosures that are kind of supposed to look like their, their homes. But they wanted to create the real world as close as they could environment. And so you had this one on one connection and it felt like the real thing. And so once they came back and they they have these concepts of what this safari was going to be like, you know, they had this idea of what Disney's Animal Kingdom was going to be. They choose a section at the time relatively remotely from remote from the other parts of the park, very much on the far west side of property. But again, it starts out with that central icon, the central hub, and then you have the safari and the rivers and the lands and all the different backstage areas but it really ryan and i think part of the reason why we keep coming back to this idea of it being not a zoo was it really what much was based on the integrity of an overriding story so they had to keep that in terms of what they were showing the places they were representing it wasn't there just for the sake of a safari there had to be like i said earlier there had to be sort of a, a message and a mission in animal kingdom as well too which is very very different than any of the other parks previous Absolutely. And with this, this safari, you had to have a very strong story. Uh, and they, they took it straight from Africa where they have these reserves that are on farmland. Most of wild Africa isn't, access, isn't accessible to the regular people who come to the country because it's on farmlands, it's on ranches, it's on these reserves. And you have to have special permission to get into all these places. And that gave them their basis for the way they could present their reserve in Harambe. Yeah. And, you know, the thing that always. Um impresses me about Disney, right? And again, it goes back to Walt, right? Walt Disney was, like his window, the graduate school of master planning. He surrounded himself by the people who were the very best at what they did. I think that legacy very much continues, especially in times now, like with a Bob Iger that surrounds himself by people like a Lasseter, you acquire a Marvel, a Pixar, whatever it may be. But here, it was important not just to have brilliant artists and designers and storytellers But because of what they were doing, because of the subject matter, they brought in respected experts in zoos, zoology, conservation. They create this advisory board that's there at the very beginning to help in the everything from the initial development to ongoing feedback to the details to that overriding mission that we talked about. And they get people from, you know, Museum of Natural History, from zoos in Atlanta, from San Diego. They, these are the people who are top minds in their field of animal conservation, animal history, all these elements. And these are going to be people who are going to help them create the environments not only on stage but behind stage where the animals are going to live in the evenings to create this real-world functional environment for both the guests and the animals. Right, and all that had to happen – before anything could be built, right? They needed to see what these, uh, where, where the animals were going to be kept, right? How were they going to be fed? What were the trees going to be like? You know, they were planting trees so early on. They were able to convince the, the financial guys, we need to start 
planting these trees now. So it doesn't look like Liberty Square in 1971. Mm-hmm. These things need time to grow. This is a 100-acre stage, right? It's a set, just like every other theme park, but it needs to be decorated early on. That landscape needs to come in, not just for the animals, but for the story, if they want to make it look authentic, right? So they brought in real animals, real landscape designers. Sometimes they had to adjust. So for example, uh, acacia trees uh, actually don't do well in Florida. They also don't do well around giraffes. So they took oak trees, right? And they would top the chop the tops off so that they would look like acacia trees, but still be able to fit into the theming and the story. And I think there are, those are actually two sort of separate things, right? The theme is about man's relationship and conflict maybe with animals, right? And there's a story that's woven around animals, but the story sort of begins like many of the other stories do, even before you get into the safari, right? It, it starts off in Harambe, right? You feel like you're in this African village, not in a theme park. And I think they really expand on that concept, and I'll talk about this later, in something like Wild Africa Trek. But that's sort of setting the stage before you get onto this other three-dimensional stage, which is the safari itself. And and it's a really it's a slow reveal. You have these in Harambe. You, you could see the history of the place. There's walls that have come down. There are dates on things where you see uh, this is where Harambe gained its independence. And as you come through the street, you are met with this thatched roof how you know hut that is the entrance to Kilimanjaro safaris. And that was done by 13 Zulu thatchers with bird grass uh, that came over to just thatch all of these roofs to the point that where a 70 pound uh, it, well, a square yard of that thatch roof would weigh 70 pounds, but they took their time with these with their tools and they created this real world environment that had come from a safari lodge. And that was the inspiration when they when they were in Kenya uh, and Tanzania. Right. So and they're they studying this slowly. Right. And they don't do it themselves. Right. They don't take pictures. They don't do sketches. They don't talk to people and do it themselves. They bring these these Zulu craftsmen over to make it as authentic as possible. Right. And, and that's the Disney difference. That's the detail. Mm-hmm. But when they came back to, you know, I, I mentioned this in passing earlier. We got to think about this, the size and the scope of this attraction. Right. It's a 100 acres. Right. It's bigger than Disneyland. And they realized while they were on the safaris, they came back and said, well, how big can we make it? Because it needs to be on that scale. I remember reading about how they came back to Imagineering in California and they took this sort of a quiet section of four city blocks and they put a truck four blocks away and said, that truck represents an elephant. This is sort of the scale that we need to think about. This is the scale that we need to work on. And, and actually, they had actually thought about initially not having these giant safari vehicles. They wanted small kind of individual vehicles as, as though you might have on a safari. They wanted you to feel like you were traveling alone with just your family, right? You really were out in, in the, the middle of a savanna in Africa. But what they didn't want, and this is where the, these research trip pays off, is they didn't want those same kind of traffic jams like they had on the, re, on the research trip. They wanted that Vista very pure, very open, and that's how they compromised on these big vehicles. And I think when you look at sort of the research they did in terms of scale and sight lines, it makes so much more sense. You're right on. And you see things like Main Street where they use force perspective. There could be no force perspective here because everything was going to be you know, too life-size. It was larger than life. And so they had to make these roads wind so that you had these trucks spaced properly so they weren't always running up on each other. You weren't going to have 50 trucks rushing after you know, one, one uh, cat. And you're fitting this into the size effectively. You can put the whole Magic Kingdom into the safari area. So we're we're landscaping all this. We're creating animal habitats for all of for all of this space. Yeah, and it you know going back to those trucks again, they they create trucks that will give everybody a, a good view. They have these custom built thirty two passenger GMC trucks. They run on liquid propane. Uh, I remember, and maybe I'm wrong. When they first opened. Didn't they used to have these animal spotting guides like in the backs of the seats and then eventually put them uh, up on top, right? Or am I remembering incorrectly? You know, there were were people on board, um, but I believe it was more of – hmm. I I remember them always being up, but it's very possible they could have been behind the seats. 
Well, it was interesting, too, reading about how they were originally testing these vehicles. And, of course, mm-hmm. you know, who better to test the vehicle than Marty Sklar himself? And, you know, it's like a scene from a bad 80s movie. He walks in with a <laughs> coffee cup, right? And he walks in the coffee cup to test and see, you know, what the road is like. How deep are these ruts? How realistic of an experience is going to be? He come, goes in with coffee in his hand. He comes out with coffee in his pants. But he realizes that it is... Um, that type of an experience, right? Just a, a, the way the truck is designed, it gives you that sort of authentic experience. And, and even to that point too, Ryan, we mentioned about it not being on a track, right? It was very important that it wasn't going to be on a track. They weren't going to have these individual sort of pre-programmed encounters. They didn't want it to be like a typical dark ride that rode on a track and you stopped at different scenes. They wanted stops that had different plot points, and if you think about it that way, if you think about it in terms of story and plot points, that's exactly what you get. The places that you slow down and you stop, it's good that you're not on a track, right? It's good that you're not being pushed along because your story changes every single time. It is, it's an attraction that has uh, an incredible rewritability factor because nothing is pre-programmed. It's all about what the animals are doing to interact potentially with your vehicle. Right. You have things like, you know, when you're in the Iteri Forest where you could be stopping to look at bongos or you could be stopping because there's a rhino, you know, on the other side of the embankment. You don't know where you're going to get that. But the truck gives you that authentic feel from everything to the uh, you know, the canisters and the, the water jugs on the truck to the fact that you're running through muddy rivets. So there should be mud on the truck and they weren't going to be able to have mud on the truck all the time. So they sprayed it with concrete and then painted it by hand to give you that mud, you know, splashed up on the on the wheel wells. Everything was going to give you this, you know, this authentic feel, and you were going to, you were never going to have the same ride because you were always going to be stopping in these different places. Right, and, and that level of authenticity. Look, they needed to convince guests that you are there, and the way to do that is based on the environment. Right, first and foremost, the environment needs to be convincing, or the story is not going to matter. It won't make sense. So, unlike a zoo, things like the barriers in between the different areas where the animals uh, in- inhabit. They have to look, they have to be natural, right? Because it's got to be organic to the scene. It's got to have a story element behind it. So where they hide a feeder in a tree or a fake, you know, anthill, whatever it is, it, it's got to be part of the storytelling experience, right? Because the environment is of paramount importance. And it's the same way that they keep the animals at a distance from the guests in their vehicles, whether it's, you know, the river and you're in a deep rut so that that water cannot, you know, where the hippos are, can't come out. Or it's the hot buds buried in the big pond, you know, frondy uh, plants that you can't see them, but that keeps the animals from, from coming across that barrier. Or the big holes, you know, where you see the, the kopi rocks for the lions that you can't really judge that distance, but there's a, quite a bit of space between you and that lion. They hid all their all their pieces so that it gave you that environment of these, this thing is within jumping distance of me or this thing could climb out of that river at any time. And, and pay attention to next time you go on, not just at the distances and the sight lines, but Disney did something else, which is brilliant. They keep all the animals at eye level of the guests, right, mm-hmm. or higher. Because mm-hmm. what they wanted, they never wanted the humans they never wanted us to have this feeling of looking down on or superiority over right. animals like we do at a traditional zoo right and specifically go look at where the gorillas are right go uh, you know yep. in, in some sections go look at where the tigers are that those big cats they like to be superior right they design the viewing areas in that way specifically on the safari we're kept at pretty much eye level with them uh, other than obviously places like the hippos where they do need to be mm-hmm. lower. But it's it's subtle little subconscious things like that that to Disney made a very big difference. The only time you're really ab- above a big swath of animals is when you make that first turn on to, to the savanna. And really you'd still be eye level with a giraffe, but you get a sense of how big the place is and how small you are in comparison to the rest of the world around you. Yeah, it, it's... You know, I, I love, especially when, when taking people through the parks like like Magic Kingdom, talking about sight lines and what you can see from where and how perspective is used to change uh, how things look and, and even sort of for continuity of story. And I think, like you said, things like the winding roads and the placement of the animals and the placement of trees was done very, very intentionally, uh, very, very deliberately in order to 
make that happen, to make it be very organic. Uh, you know, one of the things I remember too, Ryan, that I, I wish was the case and I wish would have come to pass is is early on in concepts for this safari, they actually originally wanted to run this at night as well too, mm-hmm. right? But when you have a 100-acre park that is pitch black, it's very, very expensive to operate it at night, even for just a few weeks uh, throughout the year. So Dave Taylor over at Walt Disney Imagineering tried a number of different things. They tried to use uh, programmed searchlights and what they called smart lights that would come on as your sort of vehicle approach. So as you came by, uh, lights would go on or, or floodlights would come on. And they really wanted to create this moonlit view of the savannah with the headlights and the taillights and these little poacher campfires to really sort of set a sense of what nighttime and the safari would have been like. And I think that would, and I hold that hope, that something like that could be awesome if they were ever able to pull that off all the time, or at least during maybe a few times during the year. Oh, it would be extraordinary, especially on days where it gets darker earlier. You know, it's not as it, it's not as long of a day, uh, but they did. They tried things with you know dance troops and bonfires and putting animal sounds in the bushes, putting reflectors out there that would look like animal eyes in the bushes, all these different things for these Kilimanjaro night safaris. And it just it, it was it was too expensive. And guests were complaining because they couldn't see enough animals, and so it was never it was never going to happen full time. But yeah, I'll keep my fingers crossed, just like you, that maybe one day this gets worked out. I still have a feeling that uh, that at one point we are going to see a lot happening in Animal Kingdom at night. I think we're going to eventually see Animal Kingdom becoming a nighttime park as well, too. But look, let, you know, we were talking about the genesis and the construction to a certain degree and the theming. But let's talk about the story, right? Let's talk about the story of what it is because everything really is rooted in that. And what this Harambe, which as you know is Swahili for working together this wildlife reserve was supposed to be because they did create sort of this entire backstory to it in this this fictional village, right? It's not based on any real town or, or place, so there's no sort of political or social issues that you would have to worry about of where is Harambe really from and what it was the government like. It's about the culture. It's about the people. But they create this story about how in the 70s this was, uh, you know, early on it was very uh, a game hunting reserve. And then the, the, the focus changed, right? The, the focus changed much as our focus has changed over the years to more of conservation, right? They wanted to sort of preserve the land and they learned the air, uh, preserve the area. And the only safaris that the people wanted to have happen were photo safaris, right? Which is why they talk about that in the pre-show and on the attraction. Uh, you know, they, get, they, they talk about, they think about how maybe this is going to affect the town financially, Right. And that's why now there's there's the, the, the poacher storyline that came in there. They needed to create this sort of intricate backstory about the people and how they were needed to change and their own philosophies change in order to bring in this idea of the poacher storyline and, and to help make Harambe look the way it is. as sort of a, a, a diverse cultural uh, group right in front of what they have as sort of their their wildlife reserve. Absolutely, and you see the, you see these people's lives and what choices they've made in their career paths. Whether it's they're going to be a tour guide service, you know, for a hot air balloon, or the different safaris ideas that they can take people out on, and different areas they can take them to to see different creatures. Uh, to what kind of food could they serve? Maybe my house could be a hotel. You know, the junkyard. There's all these people who have who have found ways to not only work with the environment they're in, but to actually thrive in it. Right, and the sort of the official backstory of the safari reads, the Harambe Wildlife Reserve is not owned by Kilimanjaro safaris, but is public land preserved as a national park and administered by the town of Harambe. The reserve provides jobs, taxes, and fees to a struggling community. Kilimanjaro Safaris is just one of many companies, like you said, that offers photo excursions to tourists from around the world. However, after three decades of operation, it has emerged as the premier provider of safe, affordable animal viewing safari in their fleet of Tembo, which is Swahili for element, open-sided vehicles. In addition, the company hires and trains its safari drivers to offer a high level of information about the animals found on the reserve. They pull the story all together. Everything that you see has a reason and a purpose behind it, and now it has story too. And you can even see that when you walk down 
to the train, the Wildlife Express, like you're going to go to Conservation Station. In there, there's a poster with Kilimanjaro safaris, and you can see all the different numbered safaris you can take for the different, you know, wh- whatever you're looking for. If you're looking for rhinoceros, if you're looking for giraffes, if you're looking for water creatures, th- the whole story is there. You just have to, yeah, it just all pulls it back together. And even when you enter the attraction itself and you start going through the queue, I think so many people, Ryan, walk through that sort of, you know, thatched roof area right through what we know in the queue is the booking office, right? They sort of don't realize, they don't maybe pull together this idea of this is the booking office. And what I love doing, much to the dismay sometimes of my children, (laughs) is hanging out there waiting for the phone to ring. Right, because yeah. the phone rings, because then you get to hear the messages, right? You hear the, the yep. message that promotes the safari, and the motto is, you know, when it comes to safaris, we go wild. And if you look carefully, there's lots of uh, little props and details on the desk. There's a map on the wall mm-hmm. to really sort of put this idea of the booking office uh, being part of this working town, this working business. And you see it with the reception area. You, you go around that's like an, an area where they can show you the tours that you can book. You know, and even before you get to that point, when you first get in there, and so many people rush through that opening area, but up above there are pictures of animals, and you get the word in English and the word in Swahili, so you know like kind of what the creatures are you're going to see ahead ahead of you. Uh, and then you make the turn, and as you're leaving the office, you see the canoes because obviously they take water excursions. It's it's all right there if you're really looking and watching and listening to the world around you. And, and to that point, watching and listening is when you get to the overhead monitors, mm-hmm. you start to learn about the people, right? You it's about people. You learn about Catherine Jobson, this this biologist that's been living in Harambe for years. You you get her backstory about behavioral ecology and her focus on elephants, right? And that that focus on elephants is not just about what the safari is because we know that in Animal Kingdom itself, there is a focus on elephants and trying to figure out how elephants communicate. So it all really ties into each other. Mm -hmm. And I I can remember sitting there and watching and waiting because I love the opening and closing of that video when you see, you know, Warden Wilson flying in on his little prop plane and flying out on his prop plane. You know, it's that whole foreshadowing element of what happens or used to happen, I guess I should say, later in the attraction. Uh, But there is, they they make such an emphasis about the elephants and, you know, trying to get their communication, trying to understand how they they work as a herd. Uh, And it does, it starts right there in that queue. And I think it's interesting that they make it a point that Jobson is a biologist that that is coming to to work here, right? She's studying here. She's working here. Wilson Matua is very clearly a a native Mm -hmm. Harambian. Harambite? Harambian. I don't know. Harambian? (laughs) He's a Harambian. That's something that you take to fall asleep. Um, (laughs) But you're right. He's very clearly the the native. He knows the thing and the, the... the area it comes into play with like what they call animals later uh during the experience uh and she's very clearly outsider but she's picking it up as she goes she's learning uh she's more of the encyclopedia he's more of your cultural representative absolutely and and i and i like the fact that they like they say in the backstory this is about the people of harambe uh as well too but let's sort of talk about the the storyline right because there is the safari is not just a hop in this open-air vehicle and let's see what we can find. There is a story that has changed and evolved (laughs) somewhat dramatically in parts uh, throughout the years since 1998. um, The goal has always been about educating people, about protecting animals, about conserving, about working with, I almost said living with the land, but you know what I mean? (laughs) Um, But from 1998 till I think about 2006, the poacher storyline was of paramount importance, right? That was the story they were trying to bring home. And, and they were really trying to um, bring home a message. And this idea of Big Red and Little Red, the, the mother and the baby elephant that were being pursued by the poachers was told on those two-way radios, right? We would always stop. We would hear Wilson Matua come on, uh, talking to the safari guide. We would end up with the rescue of Little Red. But it, it wasn't always like that. Uh, very early on, the that that sort of climax had a little bit of a of a rougher edge to it. It did, and you know, the message always has been this message that we could all you know we all relate to. We all relate to the idea of 
having a child or being that child and being separated from our loved ones. And that's what's happening with Big Red and Little Red. Um, and early on, in the, especially in the previews of Kilimanjaro Safaris, it ended with uh, the rescue of Little Red, but Big Red had been killed by the poachers and there was an actual carcass there of Big Red. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the message was obviously Big Red, the, the poachers had gotten her, the, the, the tusks were removed. Uh, they changed the script, right? They, they remove the, the the Big Red corpse <laughs> as she was, <laughs> um, sort of making the, the her fate somewhat a little more am- ambiguous. It's more about, okay, en- enjoying the fact that we've rescued Little Red. I always felt bad for that poor cast member that had to just stand out there holding and the wave. face gun, kind of just waving. Yes. <laughs> like, we got her. She's safe. Okay. We're all right. All right. Yeah. Um, I always said, man, that, that's that's an audio animatronic figure waiting to happen right there. The uh, <laughs> the gun-toting cast member. The gun-toting waiting. cast. Yeah. Although I don't know that you want a gun-toting cast member. Right. I, well, and, an and obviously now it's gone, right? That that That's right. gone. Um, I think it was maybe like 2007. We hear now, okay, well, you know, the baby, little red or this baby elephant is now wandering the reserve. We've got to just sort of keep a lookout for her. You know, we're, we're looking for the poachers, but we don't have right. to worry about anything actually happening to the elephants. No, and even with the poacher scene, even at that point, it was still very realistic. You'd have a jeep that, you know, when you found the crash gates, you'd find this this jeep swinging around on a road above you, guns firing. You'd find the camp with all the tusks laid out, their tents, their food, and it was it was very real to life of, of of what a poacher's camp would look like and how violent they would be to protect what they saw as you know their their meal ticket, their payday. Yeah, and now obviously the the whole concept of Little Red and that whole section at the end. Uh, has been changed. That changed, uh, I, th- I think they announced it about a year ago in February of 2012 that that area was going to be removed, replaced with a a beautiful zebra exhibit. So we get a new exhibit. They don't have to sort of worry about that whole poacher storyline as well, too. No, yeah, they, they removed it because they're going to bring in another creature that, you know, is so near and dear to many people's hearts, and they brought in the zebras to take over that those hillsides. And you if you know the old attraction, you can't remember where the camps are, but it looks so different now that you, you kind of forget that it was ever there. Yeah, and so for you, um, is is the safari something that you is it? And every time you go to Animal Kingdom, and I, and I know you and I are freaks, right? We we ride attractions for, for different reasons. Just yeah, right. And if so, is there a specific segment of that attraction that you look forward to, whether it's a vista, an animal, whatever it may be? Um, there is, you know, I, I go on it every time I'm there, specific, especially when my wife is there. She uh, loves giraffes, and my wife loves giraffes, and so there, there are times where I go with her because we've been there where giraffes have gotten so close to the, the trucks that a tear has come to her eye. And so for me, that's always a great part to see. But if I'm going for just myself or by myself, um, I, you know, for me, it's always been the uh, – the shaky bridge and the music of uh, African Dawn that plays on the radio. I don't know why. It, 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 there's, no, there's not even an animal there. I just love that scene. Ryan P. Wilson Matua, as if I didn't love you enough, I got to tell you, like, that's my hidden gem. Like, that's my yeah. my favorite part of the safari. Right? I, look, we all love when we get to see the lion, especially I've heard a lion roar on there once. It was a right. majestic, beautiful thing. But when they play Hapa Duniani by the elephant area. Mm-hmm. I love, love that piece of music. Um, it, it's one of the ones that you like, you know, you, you want to walk around and, go, and sing it to a cast member. You're like, what are this? Uh, and I'm not going to sing it for you now because I've discovered what the name is, but it's a beautiful piece of authentic African music. And I, I like that. I like that they sort of turn the radio to music at one point. I think it's a, a small but brilliant piece of use of storytelling. It's it is it's fantastic and you know I have this great little story I was on there um, I sometime around when the, when the park turned ten and it was me and Glenn and uh, our friend Greg Gribsley a, a bunch of others on the on the truck and this cast member didn't know what they were doing and they said come on everyone you know the words sing along <laughs> and two rows of the truck sing along and she and i guarantee you she never asked that question again <laughs> it, it, you know the other thing too and it's sort of uh, i think i look at it as an extension of this experience an, an extension of the kilometer 
Manjaro Safari experience, this, this idea of theme and story and message. And it's, to me, the Wild Africa Trek very much does that. Um, I, I did that in January 2011. I'm going to link in show notes to show number 206 where I reviewed it. I also have a video there of my experience on the Wild Africa Trek. I think this sort of add-on, and it, it's a hard-ticketed uh, adventure to go on, it really gives you that sense, Ryan, that you are trekking through sort of the, the parts of the Harambe Wildlife Reserve that normal guests don't get to see, right? I talked about initially and when you walk into Africa, when you go through that portal and you go over that bridge into Africa, you're supposed to feel as though you're transported there. I felt, and they sell you on the idea, and I mean sell in, in terms of a storytelling sense, mm-hmm. that you really are in Harambe, right? You don't just sort of walk on these pre, uh, these concrete pathways. You sort of push fern and bamboo and vines out of your way in this, in this sort of bushwalk. You clip onto a harness. There's overlooks on the grasslands. You get different views of the savannah. You get obviously extended time with, with guides that really talk to you and with you about the experience. Um, and it sort of ends in a safari camp and a, and a surprise that I won't ruin for you. But beautiful vistas. And you know what? If you suspend your disbelief, you can almost buy the fact that this is what sort of uh, the ultimate think about an adventures by Disney safari mm-hmm. experience would be like. If if the trucks symbolize, you know, you're getting out there and you're in that world, you're moving through that world. This is the boots on the ground experience. Like this is you one on one with nature and you get these. Yeah, these great views when you walk over, you know, the alligators and you get more time to see and really experience the, 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 the animal's world as you're walking through it. And you become a part of that world, and it even adds to the you know when when they've added in these elements like the the rope bridges and all these elements, it gives you that sense even from the truck of a more lived in world because there are oh there's a pathway over here that you're not walking on or a road over here you're not driving on, but somebody obviously is. Yeah, and they you know give you a better sense of the different areas that you go through, right? The different savannas, the different mm-hmm. uh, the, you go over the Safi River. There's a lot more of storytelling that goes on there. There's a lot more of education that goes on there as well, too. I think it's a very rich experience. Um, it, it it can be a little bit pricey, and it is for guests who I believe are nine years of age or older. Mm-hmm. But I thought it was one of my the best add-on experiences I did. And again, I'll link in the show notes to this week's uh, to 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 that review and to uh, and to the video I shot on there as well too so my question then ryan for the listeners is uh what what what's your favorite part like what is your favorite part of the kilimanjaro safari are you a total nerd like me and ryan and you love that small piece of music that plays on on a crackly radio in the background is it a certain view is it the elephants the lions the zebras the hidden jafar Huh? See what I did there? Um, <laughs> you know, what is it? What do you really enjoy most about the Kilimanjaro Safaris? I'd love for you to leave your comment in this week's show notes. Visit the website at wdwradio.com. Click on the podcast link. Click on this week's episode. Leave your comments there. We'll keep the conversation going. Yeah, it's really great. I, you know, I know we talked all about how there are all these animals and it's our connection with nature. And then we picked the radio. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Joe Rohde, it, if he was in his grave, would be ro- rolling over in it. But Joe, understand, we dig the whole experience, man. We we, uh, we love it. I was going to say, he'd be like, you know what? Somebody noticed, though. See, somebody noticed. <laughs> and that's where it is, right? The, the, the purpose that's... of this is all about pointing out some of those details, right? And appreciate, uh, not to spoil the magic, but to hopefully make you appreciate the attraction even more. Yeah, that, that awareness of... You know, everything up, down, all around, your ears, your eyes, your nose, all of it. And also an appreciation of what the Imagineers do to research, to create an environment like that, that really is sort of one of those transformative, transportational type experiences. So uh, there are more DSIs, Ryan P. Wilson Matua, as well as Wayback Machine and other segments we got to do in the future. I look forward to coming back to you and cuddling with you on the new 10th row in the back of the vehicle as we listen to uh, our, our favorite Hapa Duniani music. And we'll look for some Tommies! <laughs> 
That may be the worst African accent I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, that was not that was not my best voice ever. It's time for the Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I ask you to challenge yourself to see how well you know your Walt Disney World history, pay attention to the details of what you see or what you hear, and enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, in honor of the Super Bowl, your question was very simple, and it was just to tell me who was the very first sports personality to say, I'm going to Disney World after winning a sports championship and MVP honors. This one was easier if you knew me. I'm a Giants fan. And back in 1986, after winning the Super Bowl, Phil Simms was the very first person to say, I'm going to Disney World. Congratulations and thanks to all of you who entered. We got hundreds of correct entries, selected one randomly to win the prize package of all the audio tours, a luggage tag, button, and signed copy of my Walt Disney World Trivia Book Volume 2. And this week's winner is... Lisa Wegner. So, Lisa, congratulations. Send me your address. I'll get your prize package out to you. If you played last week and didn't win, I appreciate you entering, but don't worry because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, it is Valentine's Day this week and romance is in the air at Walt Disney World as part of Limited Time Magic. So, your question this week is once again very simple. In what Walt Disney World attraction is Valentine's Day being celebrated all year long? You have until Sunday, February 17th at 11.59 p.m. to send your answers to contest at wdwradio.com. You'll once again win all of my audio walking tours of the Magic Kingdom, a WDW Radio luggage tag, button, and a signed copy of my Walt Disney World Trivia Book Volume 2. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks again for taking the time and tuning in this and every week. In addition to subscribing to the show in iTunes, please come by, check out the site over at www.radio.com. There we have multiple daily blog posts from so many great guest contributors, new videos. You can subscribe to our free email newsletters for exclusive content, offers, deals, and more. You can also tune in every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WDW Radio Live and the WDW Newscast. You can watch chat be part of the conversation as we discuss this week's walt disney world news there's also plenty of different ways you can connect with me and the show there on twitter i'm at lou mangello facebook.com slash wdw radio you can also download the free wdw radio app for your iphone ipad or android device great way to get easy access to the podcast blog videos live events discussion forums and lots more You know, I love hearing from you, and I want you to be part of the show, so you can call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-9391, or email me with a question you want answered on the show at lou at www.radio.com. Thanks, as always, to my partners and sponsors, including mousefantravel.com. Whether you're going to Disney World, Land, Adventures by Disney, or on the Disney Cruise Line, Becky Menken and her team of agents give you not only the best possible prices, all available discounts, an incredible level of personal service, but it's all at no cost to you. You can visit them over at mousefantravel.com. If you're coming down to Walt Disney World with the extended family or some friends, you might want to think about a vacation home over at allstarvacationhomes.com. Multiple master bedrooms, your own game room, kitchen, pool, spa, and lots more. And if you want a little bit of Disney magic delivered right to your home or to your iPad or Kindle device, Celebrations Magazine can be found over at celebrationspress.com. The bi-monthly magazine shares a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are. You can subscribe and order back issues there. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tell your friends. Tweet out that you're listening. Comment. Share links over on Facebook. And please come by. Rate and review the show and the app over on iTunes. There's a link in this week's show notes. Very, very helpful. Very much appreciated. Finally, and most importantly, as we just passed our six-year anniversary this this week, I want to thank you all again so very much for allowing me to share something I love so much with you in so many different ways. 
It has been an amazing journey, an amazing six years, and I look forward to 60 more sharing that with you. And I want you to start doing what you love every day. So learn from your past, live in the present, but create your future. And I hope you guys have an amazing week this week. Thank you again so, so very much. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou. It's Andre DeSefno from New Jersey. Um, just sitting here and doing some bio homework uh, for school and listening to your latest podcast. Uh, maybe not the latest podcast. Um, sorry. Number 309, the way back machine to 1993. Um, thoroughly enjoying it because that was the year I was born. So it's nice to know what I'm in. So, um, that's pretty much it. But I just want to say I enjoyed it and I hope you do more like stuff like this because it's early in which I mean, I'm sure a lot of other people. Okay, Liz, thanks for everything you do and I'll talk to you. Bye bye. You've got a friend.